This podcast has been developed for financial advisor use and provides general information only and does not take into account any particular individual's objectives, financial situations or needs. BT Investment Talk by BT Investment Solutions is a monthly podcast produced exclusively for Australian financial advisors. Our investment experts, together with some of the world's leading fund managers, will provide thought leadership on a wide range of investment topics. Investment Talk is all about looking beyond the numbers, helping advisors cut through the noise, enabling them to have meaningful investment and portfolio construction conversations with their clients. Hi, I'm Matt Harvey, National Key Account Manager and Senior Investment Specialist, and welcome to another episode of Invest Talk. Today, I'm fortunate enough to be joined by Adam Deering from our own investment team and Belinda Wong from Wellington Management. Um, for those of you who don't know Adam, he plays the lead role in managing our international equity multi-blend portfolios, and it's his job to identify, blend, and monitor our global equity managers. And one of those managers is the Wellington Global Opportunistic Value Fund, which Adam and the team recently increased their exposure to. And Belinda is an equity research analyst for this strategy and joins us from the US. So Adam, Belinda, thank you both for your time. Belinda, uh, as I mentioned, you're, you're based in the US. Uh, it's, it's always good to hear a few anecdotes from life on the other side of the globe in this pandemic world. Um, you, you're obviously about to head into your winter. Could you just give us a sense of, of, of what life is like uh, over there at the moment relative to, to pre-pandemic? Sure. Thanks so much, Matt. Um, it's great to have the chance to speak with you and Adam today. And it has been absolutely wonderful partnering with Adam and the rest of the BT team over the last three years. I'm so excited for today's discussion. Well, in terms of my day-to-day life, I'm pretty excited to report that things are starting to feel a little bit normal as I'm starting to visit companies again. Uh, Last week, actually, I had the opportunity to attend a telecom industry event and the energy was absolutely electrifying. After 20 months of work from home, which feels like an attorney for an aviation analyst, it was so good to see all of our portfolio holdings and their industry peers. However, I would note that as things are starting to get a little bit closer to normal, the reality is that the pandemic has actually caused my team to evolve the way we work together, and some of these changes will constitute a new normal going forward. I'd be remiss to note that a lot of us have had to increase our caregiving responsibilities at home with children or with parents and have taken on other stresses during the pandemic. And as a result, something that we've learned is to be much more intentional with our time and to maximize it in impact of discussions that we we may have because someone else may be making a sacrifice to even attend a team meeting. These are just a couple of the changes that we will be taking with us as we start to return to a more cadence of in-person work at the office. That's great, Belinda. And it's interesting to hear how your your teams evolve. And I guess we've all had to evolve and adapt it in some way. And, and I'm sure we'll also touch on later in, in the discussion around changes to consumer behaviors as well and, and how that's influenced your um, your investment decisions. Um, but before we get into that, I'll, I'll first just give a quick update on the core series portfolios for the month of October. Um, so during the month, we saw a sell-off across both domestic and international fixed interest asset classes um, as the market continues to reprice inflation expectations. And this ultimately translated to the income defensive and moderate portfolios uh, having negative absolute returns between uh, 0.22% and 0.41% after fees for the month. Uh, But on the flip side, we saw positive returns across international shares, property and infrastructure asset classes. And this meant that the balanced growth and high growth portfolios had positive absolute returns after fees between 0.36% and 0.73% for the month. But I think probably the most significant uh, recent change that's that's worth noting 
uh, relates to the income portfolio. If you, if you recall back in September, the investment team reduced the allocation to Australian fixed interest by 5% and reallocated it to cash. Well, consistent with reducing the portfolio's interest rate sensitivity at the start of November, the team has reduced its exposure to the global aggregate fixed income strategies by 4% and proportionally added that 4% allocation to uh, defensive yield credit-like strategy, which within the core series portfolios is the Capstream Absolute Return Income Fund. Uh, but as always, for more detailed attribution and performance reporting, I encourage you to visit bt.com.au forward slash core series, where you can download the October monthly reports. So Adam, with that, it, it might be worthwhile to first touch on how you think about constructing a global equities multi-manager portfolio and, and in the process, touch on the recent manager changes that you've made. So for core series, that meant the removal of River and Mercantile, adding guard cap and changing the Wellington strategy to be 100% global opportunistic value. Uh, what can you tell us about the, the body of work you did and, and the rationale behind these changes? Thanks. Thanks, Matt. So look, the first thing I would emphasize when we're trying to construct multi-manager portfolios is we're trying to have a lineup of managers that we believe that can persistently generate alpha going forward. And so we're looking for managers that we believe to have a competitive edge in executing their investment thesis. So typically that comes down to a greater appreciation of risk and, the, and reward than is currently priced by the market. And so once we have that lineup of managers who we believe can generate alpha going forward, we're trying to combine them in such a way that we balance out the inherent risks that come with any investment style. So, you know, in simple terms, over the long run, we expect all our managers to generate alpha, but over the short run, we would expect their performance pattern to differ. And that comes down to simple exposures that a certain investment style will have and how that exposure will perform relative to the economic cycle. So, for example, global opportunistic value strategy will typically still have exposure to companies that have greater sensitivity to the economic cycle. And so we would expect that strategy to outperform in when the economy is accelerating and when people are optimistic um, about the market environment. When I think about the recent changes we've made, there's really three things we're trying to achieve. The first is we're trying to align the portfolio with managers who we believe have a competitive edge. That is, managers we believe will generate alpha over the long term. The second thing is we're trying to ensure that risk exposure primarily comes from stock selection. And so that's about balancing out those inherent risks that come with style exposure. And the third is we're trying to improve the performance of the portfolio in risk off markets. Now, that third point comes down to just having exposure to a manager like GuardCap will help, but also having an exposure to global opportunistic value helps in the sense that, yes, they provide exposure to a value factor, but Belinda will go into it in a bit more detail, but the fact that they're forecasting future cash flows, they're not looking at naive value metrics, means that they have a more stable performance profile than perhaps other more deep value or naive value managers. And that's something we find appealing and one of the reasons why we increased the allocation recently to GOV. Well, thanks, Adam. And just on that point, Belinda, if you could just expand on that perhaps. So your value strategy, my sense is that uh, at times you may own stocks that are traditionally classified as, as value based on that sort of future earnings profile that Adam spoke about. Is that a fair comment? And, and maybe just 
talk to uh, a stock example to, to try and bring your, your strategy to life, that'd be great. Yeah, that is certainly true in some situations, yes. Um, but it's important to highlight how we find ideas and what our approach delivers style-wise, as this is what can lead us to have very differentiated value exposures from other types of value funds. At the portfolio level, we definitely provide the aggregate valuation metrics that you would expect from a value strategy. But our starting point can look very different from some of our competitors in that we look for situations where uncertainty is elevated or has recently spiked. This is in contrast to traditional or naive value investors who may often start by focusing on companies with cheap valuation metrics. It might be helpful for me to bring in an example to bring things to life a little bit. I'll go through Compass Group, which is a UK-based global catering company that operates canteens at offices, sports stadia, schools, and hospitals. Compass is an industry leader that has consistently produced growth and margin expansion for numerous years, and as a result, their shares have historically been traded at a premium. However, in the early days of the pandemic shutdown, there was great uncertainty for Compass investors as people no longer went to school, to offices, to sporting events, and therefore were not eating any of the food that Compass was contracted to provide. Compass stock fell in line with the broad market initially, but when the company announced plans to raise $2 billion in equity, uncertainty spiked and fear emerged as well. We believe this caused a great deal of stress for the existing shareholder base who had always viewed Compass as a steady eddy long-term compounder. But now here it was, um, their darling company raising equity inconsistent with what they had seen, what they had believed um, or what they had come to expect from a company that had consistently outgrown its sector and expanded margins gradually every year. This shock and change in expectations resulted in a great deal of selling. Since our team had experience with many other recapitalizations, especially during the 2008 financial crisis and with one other company earlier in the COVID pandemic, we had a more optimistic view of this equity offering and we were very interested in learning more about the company, which we had followed for numerous years. Instead of viewing their equity raise as a negative, we believe that the company could actually be um, acting from a position of strength. My initial review of the company focused on working with our fixed income analyst, Kara Connors, to understand the company's pro forma liquidity position with a focus on gaining confidence that even in a very draconian reopening scenario with some amount of negative cash flow, the company would have sufficient debt covenant headroom and liquidity to survive. As Adam previously mentioned, it's very important to protect the downside. And in this COVID situation where we weren't sure of the duration of the pandemic, we needed to make sure that the equity would not be imperiled because of the company losing money or violating their debt covenants. After our conversation with Kira, we concluded that the equity was not imperiled and neither was the debt because the company had, because the company had announced waivers on certain of its covenants. I then worked with several other Wellington investors, including Prachi Shah, who covers the food services industry, Garrett Mader, a European quality growth investor who had owns the equity, and Sean Caplice, our ESG analyst, developed volume, margin, and free cash flow forecasts, not just for Compass, but for sector peers. This industry deep dive led me to believe that due to Compass's superior balance sheet versus peers going into the crisis, that it would be able to restore revenue and margins much more quickly than consensus expectations and further solidify their leadership. Due to our long collective experience with not just Compass, but its peers, we were able to make the decision to participate in Compass's equity raise in less than two days. This was a classic capitulation moment where we took a very different view of a short-term event, believing that the raise was more out of excess prudence than of necessity, 
and was done with an eye toward increasing optionality in a slower recovery scenario. Our deep industry research led us to believe that this raise, along with other astute operating decisions, would ultimately advantage Compass versus weaker competitors and enable the company to gain share, recover profitability, and solidify their leadership position even further after COVID. Well, that example you just gave there, Belinda, with Compass, I think highlights not only your own, your own team's process, but the, the strength of Wellington and the ability that you can draw on industry experts from across the globe within the Wellington universe, which is great. Um, and, and Adam, you know, just listening to Belinda then, you, when you sit down with our underlying managers on a quarterly basis, you also get these rich insights. It, it might be good just to give the listeners a, a bit more understanding as, as to the, sort of the governance or the, um, the, the process that you and the team undertake to, to monitor our managers. Can you, could you just give us a sense of what that involves? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Matt. So each quarter we meet with our managers and I'm sure Belinda loves those conversations that we have. But look, what we're trying to do is retest our investment thesis for why we believe it's appropriate we should be invested with this manager. And so just like Belinda has an investment thesis for individual stocks in that Compass example, we have a basis for why we believe we should be invested in each manager and we're looking to continue to underwrite that thesis each quarter. And so... In simple terms, we're trying to answer three questions that are easy to ask, but difficult to answer um, correctly. So the first one is, you know, what is the conceptual basis for the alpha thesis? So in, in this example, we've got a, a value strategy relies on behavioral bias and being able to forecast future cash flow. So we agree with that conceptual basis. The second question we're trying to answer is, what is the manager's competitive edge in executing that thesis? So as Belinda just mentioned there, she was able to give an example of all the different people at Wellington she was able to draw insight from to be able to make a decision on Compass very quickly. And it's that ability to execute um, on that information in an opportunistic manner that we believe is one of the edge, the edge for Wellington GOV to execute on that value thesis. Not to mention... We back the team, um, both Dave Palmer, the portfolio manager, and, and Belinda Wong, who clearly have, have excellent insight and process to be able to continue to generate alpha. And then the third question we're trying to answer is, why do we think this manager will continue to be successful? And that comes down to a judgment call on the people running the strategy, the organization, and their alignment and ensuring that they remain committed to the strategy and continue to make high quality decisions. So in reality, Matt, organizations change, markets change, people change. And so therefore we need to continue to monitor the portfolio and monitor the managers and monitor the decisions they're making. We're really looking to continue to underwrite our investment thesis, test the quality of their decisions and disentangle that luck from skill component. And here we have all the performance analytics we have can help us do that. We can look at how the portfolio's risk exposure has changed, when have they bought and sold securities, uh, are these decisions in line with what we would expect from the manager? And so that allows us greater insight to understand what's happening, but all of that can only be done understanding in the context of what is this manager's role in the portfolio and what is this manager's investment philosophy and process and how would we expect them to perform? And so that's what we're looking to do each quarter with our managers to ensure that this is the best allocation of capital 
for the portfolio. Yeah, that makes sense, Adam, and, and thanks for going through that. And certainly when I go and talk to advisors, a primary reason why they utilise our diversified funds is, is to outsource all of that work. Um, ultimately, it, it takes time. So it's great that we've, uh, we've got the dedicated team to, to do that for our advisors. Uh, but Belinda, maybe just to finish off uh, the conversation, it would be good to get your thoughts on, on the outlook uh, for markets and I guess just pushing macro factors aside, you, you touched on at the start that you're back out there meeting with companies, which is awesome. Um, how are management uh, coming across in terms of their confidence on, on the earnings outlook uh, and where, where are you seeing the best opportunities? Yeah, sure. So I would say that at the beginning of earnings season, um, things were a little bit rocky for uh, for certain sectors as visibility wasn't as good. Um, however, with the Pfizer news recently, the range of outcomes for many companies is much narrower than a year ago, even a week ago. And managements have a greater degree of confidence than um, than before when they were not willing to put forward oftentimes more than one quarter of guidance at a time. I think they have a greater degree in certainty um, at at least reaching the low end of their full year guidance. A major theme that I'm seeing across my more cyclical sectors is that after a period of low volume, ramping up can be just as difficult as ramping down. You would think that ramping down is really easy and ramping up is not a problem, but ramping up is actually really difficult in an environment where um, it's tough to come across labor at all skill ranges and when dealing with um, material cost inflation and logistics logistics bottlenecks. Since these issues are prevalent across many different industries, I'm prioritizing my time by focusing on two sets of companies. The first set of companies is um, companies that are undergoing capitulation events where um, their stock prices indicate a lot of skepticism around the degree of pricing power it may have in a high inflationary environment. And the second set of companies is um, companies that are solutions providers to other companies that are undergoing raw material, labor, or logistics upheavals where earnings expectations are simply too low. This has led me to spend more time on the aerospace supply chain, where I think that there could be temporary delays from the ramp up of production to normal levels after a long period of inactivity. And in transportation and logistics companies, that may benefit from a change in philosophy from global just-in-time supply chains to holding more inventory locally. And even staffing companies that may benefit from more positive volume and price trends when labor at all different skill levels is, at, is in short supply. Overall, this has been a very interesting period for us um, as we have high conviction in the collection of companies we hold in the portfolio. And at the same time, we are finding a lot of new opportunities that are really compelling through our lens. Our job, therefore, is to analyze all of these situations to build the best portfolio we can to help our clients and yours achieve the best investment outcomes. That's great. And I really appreciate it, Belinda. It's just interesting to see how you and the team um, adapt or pivot your, your areas of focus based on, as Adam was saying, how markets continue to evolve. It's, it's important to um, adapt and change with that. So, Adam, uh, Belinda, that's all we've got time for. Thank you very much for your insights and thank you for listening. If you would like more information on our solutions, you can head to our website, bt.com.au forward slash BTIS. As always, if you have any questions or feedback, please do not hesitate to reach out. Thank you.